I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of Brennan Hester, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Brennan Hester. Born and raised in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Brennan Hester's record collection contained everything from the Chameleons UK to Black Flag. So it's no surprise that as a teenager, he fronted a little band called MFC. They were a punk band, and the acronym stood for, you guessed it, Manson Family Christmas. Grabbing Max Butler and Matt Boudreaux from that band, Hester formed the Sextons. They were a rootsy and melodic band, and they got their start while Hester was still in high school. The band were local favorites, but Hester was a year ahead in school of Butler and Boudreaux, so while those two guys finished high school, Hester graduated and moved with his brother to the Bay Area, where, as luck would have it, their sister Lori was attending UC Berkeley. Lori and her husband allowed Brennan to move in with them, and after some singing in the kitchen while drying dishes, Brennan realized Lori should be in his band. Well, Boudreaux and Butler both graduated from high school, made their way to the Bay Area, and from there, the Sextons were off and running. In the early 90s, the Sextons were signed to Imago Records. Let me tell you a little bit about Imago Records' roster. They had Kylie Minogue, Great White, Amy Mann, and the Rollins Band. Ah, the 90s, you psychotic decade. Well, then they had the Sextons. The Sextons toured relentlessly. They had two singles, The One I Love and She Thinks, that showed up on MTV's 120 Minutes in regular rotation. They opened for Jane's Addiction. They tormented Peter Murphy, a story I'll let Brennan Hester tell you. And uh, that was that. They were poised to be one of the biggest bands of the decade. The Counting Crows, the Gin Blossoms, Cracker, Spin Doctors, all those bands were sort of uh, on the rise. And the Sextants, their timing was perfect. The follow-up to Lucky You was surely going to reach the same heights as those aforementioned bands. But, though it was the right time, some things just went wrong. And the Sextants never put out a second record. As a matter of fact, they broke up. Again, that's a story I'll let Brennan Hester tell you. He'll explain why. After the Sextons broke up, Brennan started a band called Pop Gun. That band put a record out and didn't do anything else after that. So Brennan Hester found himself living in Southern California, married to his longtime sweetheart and raising a family. In other words, he took some time off from music. But music didn't take its time off from him. 
And over the years, he's been compiling eight-track recordings of some rather magnificent songs. And those songs make up Brendan Hester's first solo album, Tell Me Where You Are Today. It's been a long time coming, but it's been well worth the wait. Tell Me Where You Are Today is an instant classic. It's filled with wrenching ballads, jangly pop winners, and rootsy rock stunners. The fact of the matter is that Brendan Hester has never sounded better. His humor, his poetry, and his penchant for writing great songs is on full display here. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my experience with Brendan Hester, because the last year of college, I got a copy of Lucky You. I was the music director of my radio station, my radio station. That tells you a lot about how I viewed myself in college. My radio station, stay away. I ran the radio station like, apparently, it was my own, and Lucky You was in heavy rotation on my radio show. But back in my dorm room, it was on even heavier rotation. There was a girl from Santa Cruz that I was dating who was destroying me, and I would sit in my room with the door shut, the lights out, and I'd play She Thinks over and over again, dangerously close to that point where you go, hey, I hope that guy's okay in there. At any rate, She Thinks and Lucky You got me through that last year of college, helped me survive that romantic annihilation that I was subjected to, and even after college, I couldn't stop listening to that album. So much so that the Sextants came to San Jose, which was about an hour from my house in Berkeley, and I arranged with the publicist at Imago to interview the Sextants at that club, at Soundcheck, so I get there. And I hang out with them. We do an interview. They play a couple songs for me. They sign a glossy 8x10, which I still have on my wall. And I have to say, it was an important and powerful night. Now, you're probably wondering, if I had graduated from college, why was I interviewing the Sextants? Well, that brings me to my other thing <laughs> I was going to tell you guys. It was because, and I'm serious, I had invented podcasting, and the Sextants were going to be on my first show. Now, let me back up for a second. If I had really invented podcasting, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. I'd be sitting in front of a pool, drinking a powerful kind of whiskey, and saying things like, Rihanna, where shall we summer this year? It never happened. It never happened because I'm lazy and I have no follow-through at all. But my evil plan was, instead of getting an internship like most people who find themselves uh, – you know, under the cover of a campus radio station when they're in college, I thought I would do things on my own. My plan was to interview bands and then, uh, you know, make cassette copies of that interview and send it out to every radio station in America. I did a really good job interviewing the bands. The part about sending the tape out to every radio station in America, well, that was far too much for this 22-year-old in 1992. That kind of endeavor resembled work and, uh, you know, I'm from Generation X. We don't do that kind of thing. So anyway, I got on the phone with Brendan Hester. And I should tell you, Brendan Hester is a friend of mine. He does the jingle for the Heart Goes Boom job tip of the week that uh, appears on my radio program, The Heart Goes Boom. He always sends me new songs when he's done recording them. He lets me play them on the radio show before anybody else. I mean, Brendan Hester is a really cool guy and one of my favorite people around. But I hadn't told him about our interview back in 1992, and I thought for sure he'd remember it. But he didn't. But who could blame him? He did a lot of interviews back then, and uh, why should he remember that one? Of course, 
He probably would have remembered that one had I invented podcasting and done something about it by getting it out there into the world, but instead I taped it, I left the cassette on my desk for 20 years, and for 20 years I walked by it and went, boy, I should really do something with that someday, but I never did. I still might, though. Uh, You know what? Forget might. I will. I have it, and you should hear it because it's a really cool interview. At any rate, Brendan Hester told me he invented Shazam in the same way that I invented podcasting. We both had a follow-through problem. But all that aside, it was a pleasure and an honor to talk to Brendan Hester, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So enjoy it. This is a fun chat, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. And so I was going to do a radio show out of my out of my apartment, and then I was going to send it. I was going to syndicate it myself and send it around to radio, college radio stations around the country because I figured I have all the contacts. I can make this happen. And the Sextons were my first guest. And wow. so, yeah. So do you remember? Sorry to, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy story. I've been waiting. So it pretty much all ended right then. Everybody's yeah. like, wait, who's this? He's this. Charlie Sexton? Nah. He's too Western. It it actually never – so basically I got the interview with you guys. You were great. You were so cool. And then I came home and I and I realized I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I never – so I invented podcasting but just never invented it, never did it, never executed it. Hmm. I invented the app where you hold your phone up and it tells you what song is playing, but I never did it either. <laughs> so – we're kind of in the same boat. <laughs> we have millions of dollars right now. We yeah, both. I didn't know how to do it. And I thought, well, since I don't know how to do it, just forget it. Nobody will ever do it. Then, <laughs> you know. so the problem, the problem with you and I is follow through. Right. It's, it's a lot of work, you know, it's, it's there's other work. stuff to do. I got to smoke some meat. I can't be inventing an app. Do you remember our, our meeting at the Cactus Club? Do you remember that event? No, but I don't remember much of anything, <laughs> so, okay. so don't be offended. <laughs> I won't. So if it, I'm just saying because if it came to a court of law where I wanted to get money for inventing podcasting, I just want to see if I could use you as a material witness. I mean, yeah, I'll say it. I'll say it, but just erase this part of the interview. Okay. Okay, good. I'll say that I remember it. <laughs> I, remember, I remember really little random stuff. I never remember anything anybody asks me about, but I sure remember putting smoke bombs outside the hotel room so that the air conditioner would blow smoke into Matt Bedreau's room while we were on tour. That Stuff like that was really important to me, but <laughs> tell me like what day we signed our contract and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. I don't, need, I don't know. What year was that? But that smoke bomb was awesome. So those are the things you remember, smoke bombs and uh, and almost inventing Shazam. Yeah, well, yeah, I I wouldn't say I almost invented it, but I definitely had exactly that idea. And as soon as I realized that it wasn't just going to appear when I thought about it, it was like, okay, well, so much for that. Well, here's the thing. This is my plan. My plan is I still have the recording that we did. So I'm thinking of interspersing moments of that interview in this interview just as proof. Wow. All right. Well, that's 
sounds um, cringeworthy. <laughs> it's a. Uh... I'm sure. I'm sure that I said really cool things. You said a lot of cool things, and now you've recorded a lot of cool things. Um, congratulations on this record. Tell me, how long did it take for you to put it together? I kind of did it over years, really, because I was just kind of putzing around in my garage studio that I built and sending stuff off to Will to put bass tracks on it. And just in the middle of life, I would go out and do it. And it became pretty therapeutic after my brother died just to go out and like have something to focus on, you know? And it probably took some of the songs on it are probably six years old that I just kind of re-recorded over and over until I got them kind of sounding the way I wanted them to. It was a long period of time, really, but I wasn't doing anything else. So I had plenty of time to do it. (laughs) Was there a moment where I remember hearing that you had lost some masters, like something had happened. Was there a fire or a theft? What had gone on? I I only lost stuff when I had a hard drive that crashed and I hadn't backed it up. Usually I'm pretty good about backing stuff up, but at one point, it was right around the time my brother died, actually, and I'll blame it on that. Okay. <laughs> I just wasn't smart enough to back up my stuff, and then it died. And so the, actually that last single that I put out on iTunes, I had to completely redo from scratch because I didn't have any of the original stuff, but... That's the worst calamity I've had happen in that regard, <laughs> which is not too bad. No. Uh, I remember when I was working college radio, I remember the the good folks at uh, Imago. Is that how you pronounce that? I always wonder, is it Imago? Yeah, Imago. Okay. Imago was the label. It had that weird accent mark, like Motley Crue. And so I thought I was doing it wrong. But um, when the Sextants record was going to come out, I mean, they were they were heralding it for weeks before I got it. So I was kind of excited about what it was going to sound like because I didn't know you guys. When you put a record out now, you just go, well, I'll, be, I'll be putting this out. Like things have changed. Right. Is, that, <laughs> is that a weird thing to, to get you used to? Is that strange? Well, I like it because the, the whole ramping up to, I mean, the recording the record was so long and once we got it finished, it was such a huge amount of time between when we felt like we had finished and when it actually came out. It's like it, you seem kind of removed from it after a while in that old way. But now you can just finish it up and pop it out there for everybody to ignore. I mean, to enjoy. <laughs> and um, it's, it's kind of like instant gratification in a way. And I think I told you about how we went to, we flew to Manhattan for our listening party and the president of the label halfway through the record walked out. Like he was too busy to listen to the rest of it. And I was thinking, uh-oh, uh-oh. here comes, here comes some more spinal tap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was different for sure. But it was more of an event. I remember those days it was like, you know, the, the earth parted and here was a new album by so-and-so and, um, right. It felt like a big deal for sure. Um, when it was time to bestow it upon our eager fans, like the people at tower records who weren't told that we were coming to do an in-store and didn't have our record in the bins, (laughs) like, okay, we're here. 
And they're like, who are you? You can't just come in here and play. Oh, well, yeah, our major record company uh, set this up. So <laughs> we'll just set up over here. Like, okay, well, we don't really know who you are. <laughs> so there was that big buildup, that big excitement, but we pretty quickly got knocked down a few pegs as soon as we started going out trying to support it. I mean, what happened? on the other hand, there were there were plenty of places we went where actually surprisingly mostly on the East Coast where we were getting a lot of radio airplay and there would be people even sometimes waiting outside of the club with pictures of us for us to sign and stuff. But then the next day we'd be playing, there was a place we played in, I don't know, Louisiana somewhere. And we got there and it was a Monday night and the club was always closed on Monday nights, but the record company had convinced them to stay open so that we could play, but they hadn't advertised it. And the marquee still said, I rave vibrations on it. And the only people in there were the sound guy and the bartender who were both furious that they were forced to work on their night off. <laughs> and we, we had plenty of those kind of things too. So it was sometimes real exciting. We got a little taste of that. Wow, this is awesome. Look, our record's out and we're getting radio airplay. But the next night always brought us back down to earth as we went on our little tours. Wouldn't that be like a, a, a problem with the record company? I mean, that was their, that was their issue. Like they were screwing yeah. up right? because, you know, they were, um, you know, but those days you would say, well, they were, they were hitting some areas and then other areas they were kind of ignoring or. Right. Right. It kind of seemed like they were hitting the areas that were easy for them because they knew people, but they weren't putting a lot of resources into harder markets to crack. You know, they were, and plus, I think they were focusing a lot on, we were signed at the same time that Henry Rollins was signed to him and Amy Mann was signed to him. And I think we got kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit there. I think they were they were focusing on stuff other than us for a while there. <laughs> they put a couple records out that just completely got buried and they were actually good records. I can't remember them now, but I remember going like, wow, that might be the problem sometimes of a diverse roster in those days, you know, you have Rollins and Amy Mann on the same label. Um, you remember the baby like, animals? Well, they were on yeah. there with us yeah. from Australia. They were awesome. And they were just so good and so friendly. And I think kind of the same stuff happened to them to a degree. Just kind of got lost in the shuffle. I do remember that record. That was, didn't they have a singer was a, was a woman, right? Yeah. Susie, she had such an amazing voice. I yeah. think she ended up marrying the guy from Extreme, one of the guys from Extreme. I don't remember his name. Maybe I can look it up while we talk. It would okay, be important yeah. for us to know this because <laughs> I am out in the studio right now. And, <laughs> and we can have important – Susie DeMarchi, that's her name. Yeah, Susie DeMarchi. They were a hmm. Melbourne band, right? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And her voice was just amazing. It was something else oh she also dated gavin rosdale according to wikipedia so you know wow. it's true <laughs> um i guess she she married uh, nuno betancourt wow stream do we do we know yeah. if they're still married does it say they're still married or that that couldn't have gone well oh, i hate to break this to you but um it doesn't look like they are still together <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the couple separated in 2009 and announced their divorce in 2013. So that was a good run. Yeah. That was like a 20 year run. Yeah, that's not bad, actually. No, it's not bad at all. Nowadays. Well done, Susie. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, what is your recording process like now? I mean, you're kind of. Um, you're the boss, but what kind of shots do you call that are different than the shots you were calling in the old days? Well, I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to, I don't really have to call any shots at all. When I send stuff off to Will, he always puts a bass part on it that I like. So I don't have to have any conversation with him about that. (laughs) And, And if I don't like something I do, I don't have to have a conversation about that. I just delete it and do it again. And then when Sophia comes in to sing, she just kind of sings right away. And I don't have to have a conversation about that. So it's actually pretty great. There's no friction at all. I just, it's all therapy. I just do it. And if I like it, I keep it. If I don't, I throw it away. The difference between being in a band and being uh, a solo artist now is very, very um, much less conversations. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's not that we had a lot of uh, tough fighting and <laughs> bickering about stuff in the sextants. It's just that when there are three songwriters and three vocalists in the same band, it's going to be kind of laborious to slog through the stuff and and figure out really which ones are the best to present. Because we had so many songs that everybody would write and present to the band and we would play through and we'd be over at SIR practicing stuff. And, and they all seemed so good. And you would always kind of want yours to be the one that got picked. <laughs> But we were never catty about it. It was just kind of like we would ask for other people's opinions and we kind of we ended up with kind of an even mix of all of our songs on that Sextance record and it was not a big hassle. But it's just so much easier when you don't have that much talent trying to funnel into one project, you know. That's the tough part about it. We were too talented, is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) There was too much talent in that room and in that band. That was the whole problem. We were too great and too talented. So for for people who listen to the show, a lot of them are are, uh, young, aspiring artists. The lesson here is get people in your band who aren't that talented. Right. I think think (laughs) young people are heading that direction anyway, so I don't think we have to tell them that. Because my kids, my, my kids play me some of their new stuff, and there's some beautiful auto-tuned vocals and and really inspiring lyrics that let me know that we don't need to preach to the kids about lack of talent being a bonus. Because <laughs> I think it's selling. I think it's selling like crazy. I mean, yeah. I didn't watch the Grammys because I forgot they were on, but from what I saw. There was a lot of that kind of stuff where somebody goes into the vocal booth and talks, and then the producer auto-tunes it into a melody, and it wins a Grammy. <laughs> it's amazing yeah. to me. Well, I mean, when, when you and I were growing up, because we're, we're the same age, um, 
you know, if, if someone won a Grammy, it was kind of seismic. I mean, the next day they would move a lot of units, right? Um, like sure. you might remember a young band that won best metal record, Jethro Tull. They, oh. they <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was their big breakthrough. No, I mean, but in the old days, it used to mean something when you won right. a Grammy. Now it doesn't feel um, that way anymore. So, but you know, it's, it's all, it's all changed in, in that regard, but yeah, I didn't watch it either. Cause I feel like it's, um, it doesn't mean as much. And that kind of is a bummer. I, I was figuring that maybe I'm just too old to, um, appreciate it, but I like your take on it better. So let's go with that. Okay. We'll go with that one. <laughs> I, I remember thinking back when I was young, how amazing it would be to win a Grammy and, now, yeah, you're right. It just doesn't have the same gravity to it at all. And I don't know if it's because I'm a crotchety old musician or if it really, if I'm right and the, mu- <laughs> the music is really not as amazing and the whole thing doesn't have as much of a seismic impact on careers and stuff. It's like they're already very well established before the Grammys even consider them nowadays. <laughs> so right, right. Kind of a different thing. It's totally different. Um, I want to go back to the Sextants because, uh, you know, Lucky You was for me uh, an album that was blaring through my dorm room in my last year of college. Um, and it's a, an important record for me. And it was, it, and, it, and it still is. Um, but you guys, you know, after that album came out and there were obviously there were some highs and lows. Um, how far into the recording process for another record did you get before you went, all right, I, we're going to stop. And was that a tough decision for you to make? Well, we were, we didn't really start doing the next album proper at all. What we did was we went into sound and vision studios and recorded some stuff at SIR in San Francisco. And just, we had, so many songs that we had written on the road and then playing sound check and working into sets and stuff. And some of them were really great. And so we had a tape together of who knows, like maybe 15 or more songs that we thought were really great, but there was this whole problem going on with, we had done these tours of the country and sometimes we'd play for, 39 nights in a row without a day off and every day would be not only show, but also radio and in stores and stuff. And so often um, the people wouldn't really know we were coming. It really was spinal tap kind of scene over and over and over again. And it really wore us down. So we complained to Terry about it, the president of the label and he basically said, well, it's your manager's fault. <laughs> and we said, no, we feel like it's maybe not our manager's fault. We feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing to back us up here. And we're out here slogging through on the road. And basically we went to his house in the Hamptons and I asked him to release us from the contract because we were so worn out. And we knew it wasn't going to get better because he was, you know, he was already mad at us because we wouldn't fire our manager and take some other manager he had or something. So we we knew that it was kind of past the point of no return. So I asked him to release us 
and everybody in the band looked at me like, are you crazy? And I was like, well, we talked about it, guys. Come on. We've got we to make our stand. And he's like, okay, I will release you. And I said, okay, you go ahead. And he did. <laughs> so, luckily, our, our lawyer was Gail, um, Henry Rowland's manager. And she was very tough and had made sure that we weren't going to get screwed in the contract. So we were fine when we got released from them, which is what a lot of bands can't say. But I remember during the contract negotiations, she was so amazing. Gail Perry, she just, she was not going to let anything get by. She's like, this is ridiculous. This is not going to fly. And (laughs) we were so happy to have her. So we were all right when it ended. And we were really assuming since we were so amazingly talented <laughs> that we were just going <laughs> to sign another record deal right away. But shockingly, instead, we went and just kept kind of practicing and writing songs and stuff and shopping it. And we didn't have a huge bidding war, which <laughs> started to make us all on edge. And then we started bickering about well, maybe we're presenting the wrong songs to people and maybe we're going in the wrong direction. Because don't forget, when our record was coming out, Nirvana also happened. So the face of music just kind of did a huge change suddenly. (laughs) And we're like, okay, well, shoot. I don't know if anybody's going to like our super harmony mamas and papas Fleetwood Mac pop rock anymore so we had some kind of more rock and stuff creeping in and some of it was so good max wrote some songs and Lori wrote some songs that were so rocking and great but i kept writing you know the kind of poppy stuff that i keep writing still (laughs) and so after a while, we're like, eh, maybe we should just all go do our own stuff. And Lori and Max went off and did a band called Bunny that was very more rocking. And I just kind of touched around making demos at home and stuff. And Matt went and played with a bunch of different people, Seven Day Diary and other people. So we just kind of fizzled out, really. There was no big explosion or anything. We were just, we were exhausted is what it was. It's weird to hear that there that there was no bidding war, especially because even though Nirvana had broken, by the time you guys had called it a day, it was probably like maybe 93. Does that sound about right? Yeah, probably so. Okay. So like at that time, you know, the Gin Blossoms and Cracker and the Counting Crows and the Spin Doctors, those guys were still um, – those guys were kind of – I don't want to say they were emerging, but they all sort of got got big – uh, around the same time, so I would have thought that rootsier music also had its place. I'm surprised to hear that that there that was no um, people weren't sort of after you guys. Me too. What's up with that? But <laughs> 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 it's too late now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I can put out my own records now. So right. Whew. Yes. It's a relief, but but I also wonder like what happened to those sextant songs. Are there are those going to? Because you guys are obviously, I mean, you and Lori are our brother and sister. Like you guys are cool, and you know all the guys in the band. Everybody grew up together practically, right? Everyone's fine. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, is there sure. uh, a, a release plan for some of that stuff? 
Well, I think Matt was we we had recorded a couple of things and just put them like on Bandcamp or something. I don't know where he put them, but we have a couple of times just for fun recorded stuff together and put it up on Bandcamp to of course a huge response because of all of our fans <laughs> out there. And <laughs> in the future we might do that again. Everybody's just kind of so busy with kids and stuff that it's hard but it's so much easier for us to record now too like the songs we we put out we just recorded in our home studios and sent the stuff around and then matt mixed it and mastered it and it's so much easier than it used to be we don't have to be at ocean way studios on thanksgiving day recording because it's a cheaper day to be in there anymore we can just do it at home <laughs> Well, the the last time I saw you was at Slim's at a Pop Gun show. You guys were opening for somebody that I can't remember who it was, but I was there and I and I didn't know anything about Pop Gun because in those days that was like '96. In those days, you didn't know what people were doing um, because there was no there was no internet to sort of find out if Nuno Betancourt right. is still married to the singer of Baby Animals. Um, <laughs> but I remember running into you and and there, boom, there was Pop Gun. So. What was Is that, that when about? we were opening? Did we open for the Posies there or something? Oh yeah, that's what it was. It was the Posies. I think it was. I think it was the Posies. Yeah, that's right. That was and a great show. I remember Ken Stringfellow at that show didn't have his guitar because it had gotten left behind or lost in baggage or something. And I said, "Hey man, you can use my guitar if you want." And he said. No, I better not because I never know when I'm just going to throw my guitar straight up in the air and let it land. And I don't want to do that to your guitar. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's very considerate of you. Thanks, thanks for telling me. <laughs> yeah, that's very actually nice. very charitable of him to be that honest. Yeah, super nice. Yeah, that was, um, fun. That was a fun show. It was a great show. So now Pop Gun, um, and I love that Pop Gun record. So you guys, was that a short-lived kind of thing? Yeah, it was uh, it was tough. That record drives me crazy because it sounds horrible, and <laughs> I just know that we sounded so much better live, and the recording process was just miserable. So, for reasons I won't go into, and by the end of it, once again, we were all exhausted. And you know, Will was in that band with me, so I still can play with Will and he's one of my very best friends. He's my surrogate brother. But it was just so tough, that band. And I was really happy when I didn't have to do it anymore. <laughs> and if I listen to that record now it just gives me super cringe attacks because I want it to sound so much better than it does. Yeah, it, it sounds huh? uh it sounds thin to me and you guys were yeah. had a bigger sound. Yeah, yeah it sounds it sounds terribly thin and it sounds like we're all exhausted which we were sounds like i can't sing because i'm so tired i'm going to collapse <laughs> it was just a mess it was just one of those ones that didn't work but we had some fun shows i mean when we were out playing it had so much more energy and i'm kind of sad that we didn't capture it on that thing but oh well i could always re-record some of those songs if i want to you know, when I think back, I didn't realize um, that you guys were based out of San Francisco for as long as you were, um, because you were you moved out here, I think, in like 89. Is that right? 
I moved there in 80, late 87, early 88, something like that. Okay. And, and then Max and Matt were a year behind me in school, so they still had to graduate. So I just started working at the Fillmore and the Warfield, and that was great. That was a great connection because our friend Ed Adair, who was also from Las Cruces, New Mexico, older than us, he was working at the Fillmore, and they were getting it ready to reopen because it hadn't it had been closed down for a long time. So he's like, hey, you guys want to come work at the Fillmore and help get it ready? So we walked into this empty Fillmore, not really knowing what the Fillmore was at that point, being from New Mexico. And there are all these old Fillmore posters around on the floor and like <laughs> all this booze in the bars with gnats in it and everything had dust on it. It was like walking into a time capsule. And it was just an amazing wonderland for the for us, for these kids from New Mexico. And we just did everything that needed to be done. Everything we were told to do, we did to get the Fillmore ready and finally reopened it with a Smashing Pumpkins show or something. I don't know what it was. I think it was in 88 or something. And then the 89 earthquake happened and shut it down again. <laughs> so, so we all kind of moved over to the war field and worked on getting that ready to open again. And we just kind of moved back and forth between those and we got the Fillmore ready again and it reopened again. And we had late night hide and seek sessions in the war field when we were supposed to be working, found the speakeasy tunnels that went under market street and like explored the old prohibition tunnels under the city. It was great. <laughs> what, were, what were those like? <laughs> it was kind of amazing. It would these tunnels would come up on little boarded up rooms that would be the back of storefronts, but they had been boarded up from the front and there would be shelves of old Kodak film and all sorts of just weird stuff. And then our boss cut into the fact that we, instead of working at night, we were going into the tunnels under the city. So he had it bricked up. <laughs> that was the end of our fun. A laugh. But I'm glad I got to do it. God, yeah. I mean, I like the <laughs> idea that I that they didn't get rid of the alcohol in the Fillmore, so there was like nat nat covered alcohol. Why why did they not get rid of those bottles? You would have thought they would have they would have uh, the Department of Health. Don't know. It was like a it was like a it was like time had stood still, and I don't know why. I mean, the bar was fully stocked and just sitting there. And, you know, they had the pour spouts on them, so they were kind of open. And so um, I'm really proud to tell you what we did was we had the idea to take a coffee filter and filter the gnats out of the alcohol and taste it to see if it still tasted okay. And it was fine. <clears throat> but <laughs> that's just one of the smart things I did with my brother in San Francisco. <laughs> that was my question. I wanted to know if you guys had a drink. I was curious to know. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. We tried all of them. We had to make sure that we weren't wasting anything. Well, sure. We were told to just throw them away, but we're like, well, we could throw them away in the dumpster out front, or we could take these giant coffee filters and filter the gnats out and just see if that would be a wasteful avenue to take. <laughs> so. the, the phrase filtering the gnat sounds like a Meat Puppets album. Right, right. <laughs> 
it does. I wonder if maybe I could work that into a song somewhere. What was it like to uh, open for Jane's Addiction? It was mind-blowing for us because we were so into their Nothing Shocking record. And our friend Liz Pepin, who was a day manager at the Fillmore, she was instrumental in that whole thing. She went to Michael Bailey, the booker for AKG, and said, you got to let these guys, these guys all work at the Fillmore, you got to let them open up for Jane's Addiction. And I'm sure he was like, um, I don't think I do, because <laughs> well, why would I? But somehow she talked him into it, and it was the most magical thing for us to be on the stage opening up for them when we loved them so much, and then to get to stand on the side of the stage and watch them play their set. And the fact that we worked there, we were like janitors and bar backs and whatever needed to be done during the night we were doing. So we did that and felt like we were just the most amazing thing ever. And then our boss came up and said, all right, you guys get back to work. So for the rest of the night, we took the trash out and stuff. And at the beginning of that set, I, I had the incredibly original idea of breaking my acoustic guitar on the floor, which nobody had ever done up until that point in the history of rock music. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after that, when I was taking out the trash, I had these kids coming up to me with pieces of the guitar asking me to sign them <laughs> as I had a bag of trash in my hand trying to get out to the fire escape to throw it into the dumpster. It was a kind of a surreal thing. <laughs> but the guys in Jane's Addiction were so kind of out of it that we didn't get to really hang out with them much. I mean, I asked Perry Farrell if he would sign my poster, and he said, yeah, man, uh, if you have a pen. <laughs> that was the extent of my conversation with him. But their show was amazing, and I got to open for him, damn it. Did you have a pen? I did have a pen. I was ready. So he signed it. And he, then I, that signed, I had that signed poster from that night, and my brother hung it up on his wall in his apartment, in, the, in our apartment in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And then it fell off the wall, and his cats scratched it up and peed and pooped on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now, now I have another copy of it that's not signed by all the band, but just a little reminder of my youth. I, I think Perry Farrell is sort of the Crispin Glover of rock and roll. Yeah, I, I think that's a good call, actually. I think he kind of tries a little hard sometimes, but he's also legitimately weird, and you just never know what part you're getting. And apparently Jim Carrey's kind of turning into that now, too. I just yeah. was watching some, some documentary where he's doing kind of the same thing like none of this is real man it's a combination of being weird to begin with and also incredibly self-aware and narcissistic yes and also once you get rich apparently it's really easy to announce to everybody that everything's ridiculous and you don't need to worry about anything because what jim carrey's doing is sitting around with all of his millions of dollars preaching to people about the fact that their life is not reality. 
and he's just <laughs> going to sit and paint and do whatever he wants. And that's what everybody should do. Except I still have to go to work because, you know, there's the house and the children. I have to feed the kids. Yeah. He, I saw Jim Carrey's uh, thing he's been doing lately where he's been talking about that. Like he'll say, you know, say, hey, Jim, and he'll say, there is no Jim. And you're like, oh, for right. God's sake, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. I saw him on the uh, the Man on the Moon uh, documentary thing yeah. where he was really laying it on thick. And then he was in the Jerry Seinfeld comedians in cars getting coffee thing. And he kind of forgot to do that shtick at the beginning, but then remembered that he was supposed to be doing that and did it for a while and then forgot again. Like he would revert back to his kooky madcap self. And then he would forget. And then he would remember and say, Oh, I got to do my crazy Manson eyes. And Tell people that their lives aren't real. I'm calling BS on it. Yeah, I am too. And then in the end, you find out that he's, you know, really devoted to Christianity. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. I didn't hear that part. Yeah. 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 He he'll he'll say these things like you're not real and everything's an illusion and who needs wealth. And then he'll then he'll quote the Bible. It's really strange. Um, But he's a reminder to me that we haven't figured out in the artistic world, uh, the the clown hasn't figured out how to age gracefully, whether it's Chevy Chase or Jerry Lewis or even in some ways Will yeah. Ferrell or Jim Carrey. I think when your act is the clown, um, right. it's hard it's hard to age, you know, it's hard to age as the clown. Yeah, it's true. That's a good point. You know? Um, Maybe I should stop trying to be the clown. <laughs> I think I think I need to. I'm gonna, too. I'm gonna start. To, I'm gonna start trying to be Morrissey. <laughs> is it too late? It's not too late. It's not too late. The thing is, we all get weird as we get old, and I think uh, you know your your longtime feud with Morrissey. Uh, the revenge is that I think he's completely lost his mind. Talking down to us. Is that That's what's right. happening? That's right. He's Wasn't just he kind of doing that all along, though. <laughs> Pretty much. That that was the thing. I love that song that you have about about uh, the very first line is, of course, I can sing like that guy from the Smiths. Uh, what was your thing with with uh, Morrissey? I was I was really just kind of annoyed by his smarminess, and it was a kind of a throwaway joke song that we did in the studio, and unfortunately for my bandmates some record company, uh, not record company, some uh, radio stations uh, picked up on it and started playing it. And <laughs> especially on the East Coast, they would play it. And it, at one point made Morrissey really mad and he canceled some interview at a radio station because they were playing that song. So that radio station had the Sextants come in to talk crap about Morrissey for a few hours while people called in and complained about Morrissey canceling his appearance. And they had us play the song acoustically over and over, and it was weird. <laughs> we also had some run-ins with uh, Peter Murphy on the road because we, <clears throat> for a while on tour, we were right along with him on the road. Like every rest stop we stopped at, there was Peter Murphy, his bus and his trucks and everything. And so we would always jump out and put a sextant sticker on his bus. 
<laughs> but by the time we ran into them at the next one, the sticker would be gone, and they would all be glaring at us. And it was just this, this over and over it happened. And so they all hated us because we were a bunch of ne'er-do-well, unsuccessful young dummies. And then we were in Goodyear, Arizona or something, and we were all standing at the, <laughs> standing at the elevator, <clears throat> and the elevator opens, and there's Peter Murphy in a Speedo with no shirt on holding a towel. <laughs> and he saw us, and his head just fell. He's like, oh, crap, these guys. <laughs> and he was in such a vulnerable state, too. Yeah. It was really sad. <laughs> When, when, when yeah. a man is and in here, a, I am in my speedo. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, a man in a speedo is basically defenseless. <laughs> right. Why? Most men, anyway. Well, yeah, that's right. Any that's normal right. man. Why? Why did you keep running into Peter Murphy? Like, how did that keep happening? It must have been like one of the weirdest well, things. Apparently, a lot of these tours are kind of booked along the same route over and over, and we just happened to sync up with his tour. So everywhere we were going, he just happened to be going to that same town at the same time. <laughs> because, you know, these people that book this stuff, they have their methods to doing it. And we just happened to sync up with him for quite a while. And boy, did his people not enjoy us putting stickers on their stuff. Are you prolific now? I mean, do you feel that you are writing in a in a constant way? In other words... Are you producing work um, more so than you used to? Do you feel like you're hitting a, a creative stride? Mm, not right this minute, no. I, I, it ebbs and flows a bit. And really, I didn't do anything for quite a while. Um, after my brother died, I just couldn't. I was like, I couldn't function. And then I started to do it as therapy, and it worked well as therapy, so I kind of ramped it up for a while i was sending you songs all the time for your show and stuff and right now i'm kind of in between like i have a new song i'm starting to write right now but also i don't want to annoy my family by sitting in the studio all the time so <laughs> i have to find the balance there <laughs> can't just go hide in the studio all the time but I think I'm at a pretty comfortable place with it right now. It's not like pulling teeth, but it's not taking up too much time either. What what differences do you notice between you as a songwriter now and and the way you used to work? Do you find that you're more efficient? Do you find the process is kind of the same? It's kind of the same the way I start, for sure. I mean, it's always sitting down with a guitar and having chord progressions and melodies and lyrics popping into my head kind of simultaneously while I record them into my phone or a mini recorder and redo it and revisit it a couple of days later. And if if one of them starts sticking in my head when I'm going through my day, then I know that's one I should maybe follow up on. But the uh, actual recording process is so much easier than it used to be for me just because I've had more practice at it. And I still don't think I'm amazing at it by any means. I think Matt, my old drummer from the Sextants, is now he's somebody who's really great at this kind of stuff, but I do the best I can. And I think it sounds good enough. <laughs> so 
<laughs> but it's a lot easier for me to do just because I've done so much of it now. What is your um, studio setup? Like, is it like a room in the house? Is it out in the back? Is it a bunker? We have an old 50s house in Claremont, and it had the old kind of bare wood framed garage. So what I did was I blocked off about eight feet in the front of the garage and built out walls and insulated and drywalled and soundproofed a studio. So I have a separate little studio. And also the washer and dryer are in here too, so it's great when I'm in the middle of recording and my daughter comes out and turns on the dryer because she doesn't notice that I'm there recording. <laughs> and also the water heater is out here. So when somebody turns on hot water in the house, it goes, <laughs> which sounds great on recordings. If you listen to my record, you can probably hear it on some of the songs. <laughs> if you listen closely. <laughs> you you have to give the washer dryer an album credit, like our songwriting credit. Oh, I should have. Yeah. yeah. I should have done that or put them on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, is it, how is it being a dad with these kids that are like, your son is immensely talented. His art from what I've seen is, is kind of spectacular. Um, yeah, and your, right. your daughter's a vegan cheerleader, which is hilarious. What is it like now that your kids are, you know, they have these identities, they've become people. Uh, what is that like for you? It's kind of mind blowing. Um, like my son now is several inches taller than me and, on the last song I did, I had to bring him out to the studio and have him sing the low parts because I couldn't sing as low as his voice goes, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. But it's great to be able to go inside and just say, hey, Quinn, I've got a record I'm going to put on iTunes. Can you do a cover? And he's like, yeah, what do you want? So I tell him, <laughs> and then 20 minutes later, he emails it to me. <laughs> like, okay, that's cool. And then Kira, she has an amazing voice, but I can't get her to sing yet. So I'm just going to have to bide my time. I know that she's going to, eventually she'll sing on one of my songs, but I have to act like I don't want her to for a while because right. you know, she's at that age. <laughs> so, in fact, maybe I should tell her to never sing on one of my songs. Yeah, I don't that want you to ever do it. That's it. That's exactly how you do it. <laughs> the, the, I'm telling you right now, that. you are never singing on one of my songs, vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Then she'll be sitting on the dryer when you come into the studio going, well, let's cut a song. Um, Not singing on your song, huh, Dad? <laughs> the, um, it's funny. They were asking Anthony Bourdain about when he eats weird food. They were saying, you know, do you give it to your kids? And he said, he said well, if I, if I offer it to them, they won't eat it. But if they say, what are you eating? And I say, oh, you wouldn't <laughs> like this. Then they say, well, let me try it. <laughs> there you um, go. The tell me where you are today is the is the new record, and then there talk to me about the robot album because this thing is really fascinating to me. Um, I had a band here in Claremont called Protobot, and I wrote this series of this little rock opera of, uh, <laughs> and I use the term loosely, of songs about a robot that fell in love with the human woman that ran the factory that he worked in, and. Uh, misadventures ensued and we would play this live we would like go out to the Friday nights in the village and we would play through this weird bunch of songs with synthesizers and stuff in it and people would stand and look at us like what the hell 
are these people doing? And it was very entertaining for us. And I liked the song, so I figured I might as well just put them out because I can. So I did. That's <laughs> That's basically it. <laughs> That's it. That's the story. I well, I love the son. I love the uh, the cover art that your son did is remarkable. Yeah, he's something. I look. I love this record. I you're one of my favorite songwriters of all time, and I and I don't mean to embarrass you, but I've listened to your music for so long, and I um, am in constant awe of what you do. So um, it's it's cool to chat with well, you. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It's amazing how much you've supported me. I appreciate it so much. It's over now And we go back to the start And crumble apart We cry out loud As the world disappears My thanks to Brendan Hester for chatting with me today. I uh, am going to have to bring him back. He's a fun guy to talk to. Uh, you should buy his album. Visit him on Bandcamp, brennanhester.bandcamp.com. And hey, while you're on the World Wide Web, why not go to iTunes and subscribe 
to Stereo Embers, the podcast. It would mean the world to me. And it'll mean so much. I'll come back next week. I'll see you next time with more fabulous guests talking about music right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. <laughs>